Welcome to The Right to Shower, critical conversations on homelessness and cleanliness. Welcome back to The Right to Shower, conversations with social experts and leaders on why access to cleanliness is a human right. This podcast is brought to you by The Right to Shower. The Right to Shower helps build mobile showers for those experiencing homelessness. Stick around at the end of this week's podcast to learn how you can get involved. I'm your host, Darius Baxter, president and CEO of Good Projects, and we're working to empower youth and their families to live fulfilling lives free from poverty while helping them develop the growth mindsets to thrive in their own communities. Our mission is to eliminate the roadblocks to basic needs so families can define success for themselves on their pathway to achieving the American dream. On today's episode, world-renowned celebrity chef, fashion icon, TV personality, and all-around good guy, Andrew Zimmer, is here to share his story and discuss how you or anyone can help people experiencing homelessness. If you're listening to this show, you're likely aware of how deep-seated and challenging of a social phenomenon that homelessness is to address. You're probably also curious how you as an individual can have an impact. This is a show to help address those questions and get a better understanding of what it's like. This is The Right to Shower. Welcome to the show, not chef, Andrew Zimmer. Hey, Andrew. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm good, my friend. I love being a chef, and I think it's something that I've worked my whole life to earn that title. It is as much about leadership and responsibility within a kitchen environment as it is about your skill level in cooking. I certainly had a chef's job way before I was ready to be called chef. I was too young, and I was hired for my culinary talent and not for my leadership abilities. And I was also a mess and an active drug addict and alcoholic, and the job didn't work out anyway. The, the long and the short of it is, is that outside of a kitchen environment, while I find it very respectful and very kind, and I appreciate you calling me chef, I, I, I appreciate it more if you called me Andrew, because it's always occurred to me to be kind of strange that outside of a kitchen environment, for people that I don't work with in a kitchen, anyone would call me chef. In a kitchen environment, when I'm working with people, it, it's the same thing when you're on the, you know, the drill field, someone calls you sergeant, you know, or you're you know, on the sports field and someone gets called coach. I mean, you know, you you have titles. But in this conversation, it's just Andrew and Darius, and that's kind of how I'd like it. Well, that's perfect because our listeners are a family, so we can go by first names here. I like that. Yeah, I love it too, man. And we're going to have the opportunity to talk about why you're not a chef. But more importantly, you highlight and you have highlighted a lot throughout your career, your history, particularly with drug addiction. Mm Mm-hmm. Before we get into your experiences as a chef, what occurred in your life to get you to that point? Because I know particularly in this moment in time, there is a mental health crisis in this country. Oh, yeah. Massive. And we look at those that are experiencing homelessness. A lot of people don't realize all of the factors that get you there. Can you tell us just a little bit about your story and what led you to that place? Yeah, sure. And and eventually to be homeless myself. I was homeless on the streets of New York for 11 and a half months in 1991 and a few weeks into 1992. What was it that got me there? I had a lot of problems. I thought I was the be all and end all and didn't need anyone's help. When that feeling became too overwhelming and I had nowhere to go with any of my thoughts and feelings and tried drugs and alcohol, I realized I didn't need to talk to anyone or anything. I had found my wubby. I had found my best friend. I had found my higher power. I had found my solution to every problem I thought I had. And it was all just a con that I was running on myself because none of those things were true. Hold on, hold on. 
You're saying drugs were that for you? They were that for me. Wow. But it was just a con I was running on myself. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it was just a lie that my brain was telling me to keep me using. The fact of the matter was, is that drugs and alcohol were killing me. They were killing my relationships. They were preventing me from growing in every sense of the word, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Drugs and alcohol are, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Show a picture of egg frying in pan. I mean, that's just the, that's just the way it is. And I am certainly, I mean, there are people who can, you know, casually use weed and can have a beer or a glass of wine or a cocktail, and that's great. And I defend their right to have it, but I don't have the power of choice when it comes to those things because I am an addict. And my desire for everything comes down to one word, more. And I don't know how to use it safely. Some people have a drink and they know where they're going to be a half hour from now. I have a drink and in three days, I will come out of a blackout in Marrakesh, Morocco and won't know how I got there. That's just the honest to gosh truth. Drugs and alcohol started in earnest for me when I was 13 and ended for me when I was 30 and a half years old. How long have you been sober now, Andrew? 30 years and almost three months. Wow. I know we have a lot of audience members clapping in the back right now. That is a powerful story. I know that particularly coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are struggling with drugs and alcohol at this time. So Tremendous. And very hard for people to seek help during the pandemic. It, the pandemic, not only did it increase the number of people with addiction and mental health issues, it created a lot of them. I mean, remember 20% of Americans who were right above the poverty line, which was pretty darn low to begin with. I mean, you know, I could argue the poverty line should have been right. Had those people included anyway, they fell underneath the poverty line. Traumatic experiences came at everybody right and left. The loss of a loved one, the closure of a job, the diminishing of a community, the lockdown. I mean, kids in high school who all of a sudden were thrust in a, into a position they'd never been put into before. Mental health issues and drug and alcohol use skyrocketed then for so many reasons. I mean, look, these numbers are always statistically underreported, always. So you can, you, we can just imagine if, the, if these numbers that we're seeing right now are the case, add another 10 points onto all of them because nobody raises their hand. Uh, well, some do, but a, a lot don't say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with addiction and financial solvency and all these other things that carry a lot of shame with them, it's a very difficult situation. But yeah, I've been sober 30 years and my addiction led me, uh, eventually I lost my place to live and started living with the bottle gang in an alley for a night or two. Was that the actual name of you all's group? The bottle gang? Yes. <laughs> it should be. The uh, You know, bottle gangs are old, old school drinking buddies that buy bottles and share them in alleys. And the bottle gang that I was with, we all went to the same shot in a beer a saloon over behind the Port Authority. Within a day or two, they trusted me enough to show me where they lived, which was in an abandoned building on Sullivan Street in Lower Manhattan. No electricity, cement casements in the windows, and we we squatted that building for 11 months. I, I consider that homelessness. Whether you sleep on a park bench or under one or in an abandoned building, that's homelessness. It was a horrific moment in my life. Before you give up too many of the spots, I don't want the bottle gang coming after you for blowing up <laughs> all their secret uh, hideouts. Here you are going through this experience as a man with education at that, but experiencing homelessness. Now that you have 
by the grace of God, overcome those situations. Would you say that changed your perspective when you view people that are experiencing homelessness today? Hmm, dramatically. I was actually in New York a couple of years ago, and we were on a, a street corner waiting for a Uber or a cab, something. Just pre-pandemic, there was a clearly a homeless addict, alcoholic sort of teetering down the street. And he didn't have a safe look on his face. You know, some people on the street have a safe look on their face. You know, they're just going to keep going. Some people, their eyes are going back and forth and, and they look a little scarier than most. And the people that I was with just naturally, because it is a natural human instinct, just kind of took a step back outside this restaurant. I took a step forward and just asked the guy where he was going. And we talked for about 15 minutes and he went on his way. And, and my friends were kind of aghast. They were like, oh my God, what did you say? And I said, I just asked him what he was doing and how his night was. And he just started talking to me, told me, I mean, within the first couple of minutes said, you know, that he had been sober once, but he was looking for money for, would I give him money to buy some booze? And I said, I can't. I said, but I'll look on my phone. I'll tell you where there's a, a hospital nearby or I'll take you or a place that you need help. Or if you want to go to a meeting or something, I said, I, I, I'll give you that kind of help. And he was like, no way. And he started arguing with me and all the rest of that. And then he told me that he knew that around the corner, and he was right, because I'd already looked on my phone, there was a care center operated by a local nonprofit. And uh, he said, I think I'm going to go there. And I said, I think that's a good idea. And we watched him. I said, you want me to go? He goes, no, 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 no. And he walked up to the corner and made a right. Instead of going straight, he made a right. And I'd like to think that he wound up there. But the point of the whole thing was we need to practice inclusion in this world, not exclusion. When something is scary or a, when a young child misbehaves, current child psychology says you don't tell the kid you're on timeout and kick them out of the classroom. You take a teacher and, or a teacher's assistant, you put them next to that child. You practice closeness. You don't practice exclusion. And we need to do that with other human beings. When we see another human being in trouble, we need to throw them a life raft, but we got to hold on to the rope that that life raft is, is attached to. Too many people, and, and God bless them, I, I love them, write the check, do the awareness raising, go to the fund, but reach out and help another human being and hold on to that string and, and make sure that one person gets well. I think that's really, really important. And I remember talking to my friends after I, I had talked to that gentleman, we were in the car going back to our hotel and they said, wow, you know, like, well, this one woman said to me, I'm, I feel so embarrassed because I, I walked away and went inside the restaurant. I said, you don't have to. I said, that can be scary if you're not used to talking to people like that. And she goes, well, are you used to talking to people like that? I said, I used to be that guy. That was me. Well, I hope our listeners understand. So here you are going through this experience, experiencing homelessness. You're in a gang. You're living in an abandoned building. Something happened because you're, you're pretty lit now, Andrew. I'm not going to hold you. <laughs> like, what, what resources would you say were the most important to you as you went through this experience to help you get on your feet? I came to the mistaken conclusion that my life was meaningless, going nowhere, and that I had lost I had lost the game of life. You were lying to yourself. You were lying to yourself. I lost. I got some money, chump change, went to a flop house hotel, put some dollars down, and checked in 
walked across the street and got a case of Popov vodka that had just come out in plastic bottles and just started chugging vodka around the clock. Trying, to, I was trying to drink myself to death very consciously. I just thought I, I knew instinctively that my body couldn't take it a- anymore. And, and turned out I was right once I dried out a couple of days later. But I woke up or came to, and it was, I know that at least two days had passed, we think three, putting it back together. And for the first time in my, literally in my life, Darius, I mean, my, my lips to God's ears, I did not have that ace bandage of pressure around my chest. I, I wasn't scared. And I hadn't felt that way since I was five years old. And I plugged the, ho- the phone back into the wall and I called my best friend and I told him where I was. And I said, I don't know what to do. Come help me. Those were the words. I mean, yeah, the action was plugging the phone in the wall and calling someone. I kind of did it in reverse, but the words, I don't know what to do, help me, was my healthy self hitting my ego over the head that I knew everything. And, and, and by the way, look where my I know everything attitude got me in a flop house hotel coming to trying to drink myself to death. And he came to get me. And two days later, some friends had organized an intervention and I was in treatment and I've been sober ever since. That's a blessing. Can we can we just give a hand clap to your friends, man, to your friends? If they're listening to the show, I just want to celebrate them. Yeah, absolutely. For people that may have people going through similar situations, that may have a friend in their life that's not as reluctant that maybe hasn't come to that reality. Um, to our listeners, what advice would you give them to help somebody who's currently in a position like you once were? I don't believe in the cavalry approach because people are ready when they're ready. But if you believe that someone's life is at risk, then I do think you need to to take the cavalry approach. You you can get a friend into a hospital. You can get a friend. I know it sounds scary, but if they're actively drunk or acting in a way that isn't safe, you can call the police. The police are your friend in many cases. We have a narrative that runs through a lot of police work in this country that says they are not our friends. And for some police and in some policing organizations, that is true. I live in Minneapolis. It's a very hard thing here to trust that when you make a call... R.I.P. George Floyd. That's right. When you make a call that someone is going to show up with kindness and empathy. But you got to call someone, call social services, call the suicide hotline, call someone that can help you send an expert that will, will bring someone who can get your friend into a safe place to be evaluated or maybe just dry out and you know don't try to talk to someone while they're while they're high it's it's just not going to work but i think it's you know tell the truth you know one of the things that got me sober and kept me sober was as opposed to just dry my i called my father when i was in treatment and i was like i'm in treatment you know isn't it great and he said call me when you're 2 years sober and hung up the phone did you call him we wound up connecting after about a year. He couldn't last two years and neither could I. And it all ended well. But the, the point was that his tough love, realizing that I had burnt that bridge so badly that he didn't even want to talk to me until he really knew that I was done with that part of my life, affected me drastically. And friends saying that affected me drastically. I think it's important to be truthful to our friends. You also, if you're having trouble and I reach out to you, I give you the opportunity to say to me, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And so I think people should look at it that way, that you you need to give your friends the opportunity to ask that for themselves 
and have that subsequent spiritual experience sufficient to help them get on the way to recovery from whatever it is that's ailing them. Certainly. Andrew, and I don't tell this story often for a number of different reasons, but I actually had a very similar situation where I'll never forget having to drive a friend to the airport to go to rehab. One of the most defining moments in my life. So for you sharing this story, oh, I know it's something that's resonating with our listeners, but also something that's resonating with me on a personal level. Thank you for sharing that. And your life in many ways, you've been an outsider yourself. You've been around outsiders through your experiences. And the most beautiful thing is you've now taken all of these challenges and channeled it into this amazing career. Great thing your father returned your call because his son is popping now. Can you just tell us a little bit about here you are, you host all of these shows focused on trying new and unusual foods from around the world. And you educate people, not just on your personal experiences, but on the experiences that people are dealing with uh, in regions all across the world. Uh, admittedly, you know, I'm from Southeast DC. We don't try a lot of new things. So just watching a show a little bit, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe they're eating that. But, but what draws you to these, these somewhat like outside foods? It was actually a Trojan horse. I, I kind of, I arrived at it in a very circular kind of backwards way. I wanted to do a show about teaching people about patience, tolerance, and understanding with other human beings. And nobody wanted to buy it because it was too earnest. Then I just lied to them and said, okay, we're going to make a food. Well, I didn't lie, really. I said, we're going to make a food show about strange foods in different places. And that became the hook. But what I knew by studying media was if I just, if the show became popular enough, I could tweak the content a little bit so it's I could eat less bugs and talk more about acceptance, tolerance, and understanding. And at the end of the day, Bizarre Foods, probably best known by, was all about appreciating that what's weird for one person, one man's weird is another man's wonderful, but it's really about tolerance and understanding with other folks. And all my subsequent television from you know, I mean, Bizarre Foods America, Bizarre World, all the shows that came out of uh, Bizarre Foods, Family Dinner, Driven by Food, Zimmern List, What's Eating America, all, you know, Family Dinner, all the different shows, all the different TV work that I do does have one thing in common, and that is trying to highlight and elevate other people in other cultures, even if they're just across town, they don't have to be across the ocean. And that has been, that's sort of been my life's work. And a, a beautiful job that you have done. Andrew, I have to ask, because I know our listeners are wondering this. What is the craziest thing that you've eaten in your life? We'll use a better term, inclusive term. Most unique thing you've ever eaten in your life. Uh, God, I mean, it's it's so many. I mean, a, a lot of stuff pop into my head. I, I was doing that job for a long time. Name them all. Let's go. Round robin. Hit it. No one even knows that shipwreck worms exist. These giant... They look like they're worms, but they're like small snakes that have a screw top face and eat their way through rotten wood in the South Pacific. Those are eaten. There's a condiment called sia that's also popular in the South Pacific, which are the innards, the guts of sea cucumbers that are allowed to ferment and rot into a liquid that then is used as a condiment on foods, kind of like fish sauce. And I've grown to like it, but when I first tasted it, horrific. Greenlandic ice shark that's buried in the ground, whole, guts and all, for 30 days, sorry, 90 days. Then it's taken out of the ground and it's cut into chunks of filet and air dried into something called hakarl, 
the meat sort of cures itself because Greenlandic ice sharks are uremic. They pee through their own skin. So there's all this ureic acid in the flesh that, I mean, if you eat the stuff when it's 10 days old, it'll kill you. But after like three or four months, it's just putrid and has all the flavor of something that died, but none of the bacteria that will. So, you know, a lot of groovy foods. The idea was, is I'll go to your house and I want to eat what you eat and what you like. And so I, I was at, you know, a fisherman's house in rural Iceland. And by the way, rural Iceland is really rural. You eat the hakarl. And along the way, I got to learn about what real Icelanders are all about, why they're tough as nails. Uh, because when you have to eat hakarl and harfisker, you know, dried codfish and stuff like that, nine months of the year until you get to the three warmer months. I didn't say warm months. I said warmer months. You're not eating for pleasure for many of those months. You're eating for sustenance. And that keeps you, you know, sharp as iron. It taught me a lot about a lot about Icelanders. And it's that quest for knowledge. It's I'm using the food as a way to learn about the culture. Certainly. You talk about the culture and these experiences and all these cool friends that you have around the world. But it wouldn't be the Right to Shower podcast if we didn't talk about cleanliness. Here you are having traveled anywhere and everywhere that uh, a plane can land. How has that affected your thoughts about cleanliness and the right to being clean, particularly for those experiencing homelessness? Well, I, I mean, I think I was first exposed to it coming out of my homeless experience. I showered, well, I don't remember the last time I showered before I actually got evicted from my apartment and was allowed to gather up some things and left and then found myself with this bunch of people squatting this building on Sullivan Street in Lower Manhattan in 1991. Andrew, stop giving up all the spots. You're blowing up the spot. It's a really fancy street now. I've brought friends back there and said, look, this is where this awful thing was. And it's like beautiful and $20 million townhouses and it's gentrified. But in that 11 and a half months after that, I didn't bathe. And they always say, if you want to feel self-esteem, you know, do an esteemable act. Self-care is an esteemable act. You feel good about yourself. One of the most important things that we can do for people, and it's why a couple of years ago, I started doing things like this with Right to Shower and why I felt it was very important to support this organization was because it is a basic human right. And we have to make sure that all those who choose to be clean can be. Say that again so the people in the back can hear you. All those who choose to be clean can be. It is a basic human right. It is something that we need to help those who cannot help themselves to do so because they will feel better about themselves. And in many cases, and this was part of the, the mental illness that, that I still deal with, I had a tape in my head that said, I'm not worthy of it. I don't deserve to be hmm. dot, dot, dot. And one of them was to be clean, to have a roof over my head, to eat off a clean plate, you know, to shower in the morning, to have a bed to make. And you want to know something? We live in America, right? And we argue a lot about this country. And certainly the last five, seven, eight years have been a horrific time to live through, in my opinion. However, this is the richest most successful, any way you measure it, the most advanced culture in the history of the world, that we have people who are hungry, 
that don't have the ability to clean themselves, that don't have a roof over their head, is no longer shameful. It's no longer criminal. In my opinion, it's genocide. Because the fact of the matter is, is that we have the dollars and the skill set to solve the problem tomorrow. We could statistically end those problems that we talk about tomorrow. Statistically, we could do it if we chose to, but yet we don't choose to. That's the part one of the genocidal definition. The second one is when it comes to a certain group of people, the numbers of those who are affected by so many of these things are predominantly people of color. So when you combine those together, we have what I believe is a genocidal choice that we are making not to get rid of these societal ills. If we are not going to prioritize people, then what kind of culture have we developed? What kind of nation have we built if we are not going to prioritize people? Because to your point before, that homeless guy walking down the street that I talked to was someone's dad or someone's brother or someone's friend. I was someone's son, someone's friend. Like you said, I shined up pretty good. Human beings are like plants. Give them a little sunlight and a little water and incredible stuff happens. And I think it is vitally important that we don't decrease our our social justice awareness and our access for all people to live as we do. If we do not do that, what have we built? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I just want to go ahead and I'll, I'll endorse you right off the gate, Andrew Zimmerman for president. <laughs> but you talk about access. Are you familiar at all with mobile showers? Oh, yeah, of course. I, I helped do, I think it was a year, year and a half ago, I helped do some uh, promotional work for it. And it's an incredible thing. Have you ever used one yourself? I have not. Like mobile food pantries, like mobile kitchens, like mobile medical trucks that go into different neighborhoods. These are the things that we need to be doing more of and bring the solution to the people because it's easier than bringing the people to the solution. But then long term, wouldn't it be great if we could put all those businesses and nonprofits out of business? Right now, you know, we have uh, big businesses are, uh, I think they're at 40% of occupancy, sorry, 48% of occupancy in the top 100 cities across the country. And most of those businesses are not returning in their subsequent numbers. We need to start doing things like turning those buildings into affordable housing if not free housing. We have a a gazillion ways to change the equation now. With every problem comes opportunity. And our problem right now has not been, let's make some big corporations rich. Or or, or our situation right now, we've, we've made a lot of big companies a lot of money. Let's start taking care of all the human beings that have been traumatized over the last year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And let's start to address it again. We're not putting people first, and we need to put human beings first. Certainly. So as we continue to build your campaign team, Andrew, you're a very big thinker. It's very clear, and clearly people over the course of your career have noticed. But for our listeners, help us to understand what is something that people might not think about, right? When we think about those experiencing homelessness, what is something that people might not think about, but that is a big issue for the unhoused community? The shame and the trauma that comes with it, even when one does get housing, or we even when one does get treatment for whatever mental health issues may be, you know, concomitant with the lack of housing. There are some people who don't have housing because they 
they lost their job, had nowhere else to go, and they're sleeping in their car, and then they got a job, and we hear about them on the news, and we applaud them, and I applaud them. But we have so many people that are thrust in this situation because they've come back with some serious PTSD from serving in wars overseas, or they have some addiction or other mental health issues that have put them into that situation. It is very much, very much something that we need a lot more empathy and understanding about. You don't just take someone out of homelessness and give them a roof over their head and expect that everything else is the same. There are underlying causes and conditions that need to be addressed. And and the same is true for, you know, people who are addicts and alcoholics, those for whom, look, there are a lot of people who've come home, men in service, women who have so bravely served their country, who have come home and do have a roof over their head and don't have a drug or alcohol problem and are still just as plagued with mental health issues. We need to start to take care of them. Homelessness is just a layer, right? It's just a layer. We can peel that layer off and we can solve that problem, but it still is not going to make all the other underlying things go away. With me, my homelessness was solved, but I still have my alcoholism, my drug addiction, my trauma, my carried shame, and my depression to deal with, and anxiety. Andrew, your story just continues to unwrap. You're like an onion. In addition to being an onion, you're also a fashion icon. So as we head to the end of the show here, as you were experiencing homelessness, put us in the brain of Andrew Zimmer. What would it have meant to you at that moment in time to do something as simple as take a shower? Oh, my God. It would have meant the world, but you would have had to have twisted my arm. I I had a tape running through my head that said, I I don't deserve one. The negative self-talk was part of my mental health issues, and those are the things that have to be addressed. You know, when I was on the streets doing What's Eating America and we were trying to get medical services to addicts and alcoholics on the streets of New York, so many of them just didn't want any help getting to a hospital. You know, I started talking to some, I said, look, I said, no one's going through your pockets. You want to still get high? You can still get high. You want to come back here to your friends? You can come back here to your friends. They'll keep your shit. You know, whatever it is, you know, we just want to get you checked out. They still didn't want to go. And we had this conversation that, you know, with several of the people in the show at that point with the doctor and and social worker, and they were talking about this layered problem It's, you know, on one hand, they don't want to leave their corner, their spot. They don't want to give up their drugs. But there's also a tape in their head that says they don't deserve the help. They're already too far gone. They believe, you know, saying, don't help me. I don't deserve it. I need to pay some kind of price. That's that carried shame from trauma that is so horrifically destructive in our society, which is why we need a multi-pronged approach. There's never one way to approach this. You know, we could go in there and give everyone in the world a shower. But if we don't also get some evaluation for those people, if we don't get them some other help, if we don't give them clean clothes, if we don't give them a hug, the, the power of a hug is unbelievable. At one point in my recovery, I thought I was unhuggable and unlovable. First time someone gave me a hug in sobriety, I almost leapt up out of my chair. I was so excited. And it it was because I finally realized, my God, I haven't been given one in so long. So we need to have a multi-tiered approach to things. There is nothing like helping another human being to make yourself feel good. So for those listening, I would also implore them to get involved in service work of some kind. Certainly. Well, the favorite quote that I've ever heard, and it's actually the thing that single-handedly inspired my journey, was the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And Andrew, not Chef Zimmer. You, my friend, have definitely found yourself and pursued your passion from the moment that you found it. 
But as we close out this week's episode of The Right to Shower, Andrew, we have a, a little bit of a trend here. Yep. Do you have a affirmation or a positive word you want to leave our listeners with as we close out? I would tell all folks, you can act your way into right thinking, but you can't think your way into right acting. You actually have to do something about it. And that applies for ourselves personally, our families, our communities, and our country at large. We have to get up and we have to take some action. We're not going to think these problems away, but we can act these problems away. Thanks again to Andrew for being with us today and giving us some insight into his story and experience. If we can develop a sense of community with those around us, extending a helping hand gets that much easier. If you're looking for some ways to get started, you can visit therighttoshower.com slash getinvolved to learn more about opportunities to volunteer or donate. You can also buy our shower products on therighttoshower.com or through Amazon. For every soap you buy and shower you take, you help us bring mobile showers to the streets. And another free and simple way you can help is to rate this podcast, leave a review, or share it with your friends so that we can spread the power of the shower to even more people. I'm Darius Baxter, and this has been another great episode of the Right to Shower podcast. See you next week, guys. Thank you.